Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. One of my favorite movies, I mean, I've talked a lot about movies lately, but that's what I think about all day long, you know, when I'm sitting by myself trying to figure out what to say to you all. So, <laughs> one of my favorite movies is the movie Forrest Gump. Y'all, you know, know Forrest Gump. Yeah, who doesn't know Forrest Gump, right? <laughs> I won't get into all of the reasons why I love Forrest Gump, because they are many, um, but one of the reasons is uh, it stems from the fact that it was kind of like a coming-of-age movie for me uh, where I was, uh, you know, like a late elementary school, maybe early middle schooler when it came out. I don't, I don't really know, but all I know is that when I watched Forrest Gump, my eyes were open to a whole lot of new situations that I had not encountered in my life thus far, things that I had merely heard about or knew were possible, but that I'd never quite really actually seen with my own eyes. And for that reason, I watched it a lot of times. Also, there was nothing else to do. It was the 90s. Like, what was I going to do? Go outside and play? Come on. <laughs> but the beauty of, of the movie is that it really covers, uh, like, a ton of different kinds of human situations and conditions. And so in a sneaky way, in a sneaky way, Forrest Gump tells the stories of humans who are dealing with grief particularly the type of grief that is associated with trauma and how the way that they cope with that trauma manifests throughout their lives. Particularly, there is this dichotomy created between the main character, Forrest Gump, and his former commander from the Vietnam War, Lieutenant Dan. The pair along with the rest of their platoon while in Vietnam, find themselves under heavy enemy fire with most of the men sustaining injuries. Now, Forrest gets out of the, the firefight, but then realizes that his best good friend, Bubba, has not made it out yet. And so what Forrest does is he continues to go back into the hot zone to find his friend Bubba and runs across a different person from his platoon, carrying each of them out, including Lieutenant Dan, until he finally finds Bubba. But when he does, Bubba dies in Forrest's arms. And it turns out that Lieutenant Dan wasn't super fortunate either. He loses his legs. And when we catch up with him later on in the story, he's miserable. He's grown bitter, and he's developed a drinking problem. Meanwhile, Forrest is happy as can be and flourishing in life, and you're left with this question of, like, why? (laughs) 
Conventionally, we chalk this all up to the fact that Forrest is a developmentally slow person. And perhaps that was the general public's conception of persons with learning disabilities in the mid-90s when Forrest Gump came out. And being slow meant that a person didn't understand the full gravity of the situations that they were in, that they were not as deeply affected by traumatic situations. But that was the 90s. I think that today we know a little bit better, or at least I hope that we do. You see, because of that, when, when I watch Forrest Gump now, I, I recognize the fact, that, the fact that Forrest is a character that is portrayed as being developmentally challenged. But in the midst of that, what Forrest Gump is doing is actually modeling for us the most healthy possible way to deal with grief and trauma. His entire life was surrounded by grief. It's not like he escaped it. His father left when he was a boy. He was picked on mercilessly as a child. He went to war. His best friend died in his arms. His mom passes away, and then, eventually, so does the love of his life, Jenny. See, Forrest's entire life was surrounded and infiltrated with grief and with trauma. But the entire genius of the movie Forrest Gump is that it's narrated by Forrest himself. Forrest telling his story to anyone who will listen. It's almost as if the movie itself serves as the model for how to deal with and process grief. So we're in the midst of a sermon series based on the book of Lamentations, which is a book of prophetic poems that detail the collective grief of the nation of Israel after they were attacked defeated and carried off to exile by the Babylonian Empire. These poems depict a people who are deeply grief-stricken, who are traumatized. And these poems do not tend to resolve with much outward hope. And yet they do have buried within them a means of moving through and processing that grief. And that is, as I've said a few times now over the weeks, the process of tears, talk, and time. So last week we talked about how the Bible prescribes our tears. We found out that crying over the brokenness of our world and the human losses that we experience is actually a means of being like Christ and a means of fully living into the image of God that we all bear as human beings. And so this week, we're going to move into the middle phase of the grieving process, talk. And this right here is where a lot of the hard work gets done, where a lot of the discomfort needs to be worked through. This talking part is the part that most people would rather just not do. We'd prefer to just deal with it on our own and not bother anyone else with our feelings and with our story. However, the very nature of healing for us comes from talking. 
Specifically, it comes from the spoken language between us and God and between us as a community of God's children. And so in the third chapter of Lamentations, the poet offers these words as a guidepost for healing. This is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 40 and 41. The poet says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. When I read these words from an ancient Hebrew book, I'm reminded really deeply of some of the practices of the 12-step recovery program. So the, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you don't know, they, they lay out a specific and practical means of getting and staying sober. And the beautiful thing about that is that out of the 12 steps, only one of them is actually about alcohol, the first one. The rest of the steps are a means of having the spiritual and psychic change that is necessary to keep the alcoholic from returning to the drink. The drink, which had become that person's solution to dealing with trauma or grief, has become the source of their trauma and their grief. And, and what the program realizes is that in order to live out a transformed life, we need to give people a new solution. And almost all of it involves talking. Specifically, the talking that occurs between the alcoholic and a person called a sponsor whose job is to guide them through the 12 steps of recovery. So we look at Lamentations 3.40 again. It says, let us test and examine our ways. Let's look at ourselves and see what we're all about. It looks a lot like step four of the program, which says we took a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It's almost like over 3,000 years, human beings didn't change. Who knew? <laughs> Likewise, two steps later, step six says, we became willing to have God remove all these defects of character. So what these things are saying is like, we looked at, at, at what was broken. We looked at the mess. We realized it. We, we came to terms with the fact that like our life is full of junk. And then at some point we decided, I'd like to not live with this anymore. So what the poet and, and what the recovery program knows is that we can't do this on our own because human beings are very well-versed in self-deception. We're really good at ignoring our own realities. We can't really see our flaws for what they are, our needs for growth, and we certainly can't see the ways that trauma and grief have imparted themselves onto us and into the ways that we interact with and deal with our world. Most importantly, we can't see, we cannot see the ways that trauma and grief cause us to treat ourselves 
in ways that we would not allow other people to treat us. We cannot see the ways that we deny ourselves of the dignity that we deserve as persons who bear God's image. And so what we need is the help of an objective outside observer, someone who listens to our story and asks the hard questions, an assistant of sorts, right, like a filing system, people who help us take all the scattered pieces and put them into place, people who help us see reality so that we can truly take a step in a new direction with a clear path laid out ahead of us. And that path requires us to acknowledge the other dimension of talking, prayer. Lamentations 3.41 says, let us lift our hearts as well as our hands up to God in heaven. Similarly, step five says, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We didn't just look at what's messed up and say, I'm going to just hold that all in. Step seven says, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And so in all of this, it's really important for us to remember that audible and real prayer is a means of moving through our pain. You see, at its very core, prayer is a reminder to ourselves that we are not responsible for healing all on our own. God is the one that ultimately drives our healing. But it is our responsibility to engage in the process. And a part of that means that it's up to us to bring our pain and the facts that we have discovered in the process of talking about our grief and our trauma to God and request healing from him. But maybe you're like, well, that's fine for the alcoholic. <laughs> what about me? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to talk to? Well, you might not like the answer, but I'm going to tell you something. Did you know that there are people that you can call? You can make an appointment with them to go and talk? Your health insurance might actually cover it. <laughs> They're called therapists, right? <laughs> Counselors, people who literally get paid to talk to you. And everyone in this world can benefit from seeing a therapist. I do. But not only that, the people around you will also benefit from you seeing a therapist. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but seriously, though, you know, talking, talking isn't easy. Talking about our problems and our grief and our pain is really, really difficult because we don't want to go and relive that. But it's important. And so what we need more of in our society and in our church is for people to feel comfortable, to people, for people to find objective third parties that they can just sit down and talk with. Maybe that's a therapist or a counselor. 
Maybe it's in the form of a support group for those who have experienced loss or for those who have experienced any specific type of trauma. Maybe it's just within the safety of a small group of people in the church. Maybe you just need to call this lady Mary Whedon that goes to the traditional service because she will talk to you for like two hours, I promise. She's the best. <laughs> she's got nothing but time for you, even though she's probably got lots of other things to do. When you call, she's with you. See, regardless of who it is, what we all need is a place where we feel able to be fully honest about how we're feeling, about the things that have happened to us or are currently happening to us. Because it's in these relationships that profound healing is allowed to occur. And this is because counseling or talk therapy or whatever you choose to call it, within that, there is this model of the relationship that God chose to have with creation. See, in the garden, after humans ha made a poor choice and are feeling the consequence of their action, they're feeling the shame, God comes seeking after them and asking, where are you and what have you done? Better yet, what I, what I always picture in my mind is, is God asking them what my therapist always asks me after I ramble on about nonsense for a while. So what's really going on here, right? Perhaps one of my favorite names for Jesus, one that we only tend to mention around the Christmas season for some reason, is Wonderful Counselor. And I think that we often overlook what that really means, and particularly how Jesus played the role of a counselor in his ministry. So remember, we're talking about a counselor as a person who we are able to be fully honest with, who we are really able to talk with, to get to the root of what's really going on. And this was something that Jesus was deeply capable of being for people. My favorite example of this comes from John's Gospel, and it involves a woman from the land of Samaria. So just a little bit of context. Uh, Samaritans and Jews were not friends. Samaritans were people who were, had their roots in the old northern kingdom of Israel. When the kingdom split, uh, the, the lower nation was the nation of Judah. The northern nation was the nation of Israel. And they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire and they interbred with the Assyrians and returned to the land of Samaria. And so the good Jewish folks down south in Judah looked at the people of Samaria as half-blood heretics. Good Jewish folks would not concern themselves with those people. So just keep that in mind as we read John chapter 4, starting right at verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was that it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give to them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And so we have Jesus. And this woman who's clearly caught off guard by Jesus' presence at the well. Something that we need to understand is that the woman is alone, drawing water in the middle of the day in the Middle East. It's hot. The women of ancient cities got water in the morning together when it was cooler and when there was safety in being together in numbers. And so this woman's presence at the well at this time by herself is abnormal. What this tells me is she's likely avoiding all the other ladies. And so she meets with Jesus, and she's, and she's clearly skeptical of him. And so she does what any smart person would do. She, she qualifies him. And Jesus' words seem to assuage her skepticism. He's offering her something a type of healing that entices her. So John goes on. Right after the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, well, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Now what has happened here is that in very few words, this woman has told Jesus the truth at least the beginning of the truth. And Jesus' ability to supernaturally see what's really going on comes out. Suddenly, everything makes sense. This, this woman is living in shame. And her shame, the, the reason that she's so skeptical of Jesus, 
The reason that she's drawing water alone from a well at a time in the day where she could avoid the other women of the town all becomes clear. She is carrying the weight of the shame and the grief of her failed marriages and all the rest of her past. And it's heavier than the jars of water that she carries day in and day out in the heat of the day from that well. So a few verses later, in verse 28 through 30, we find this resolution. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And then they left the city and were on their way to him. My favorite detail of this is that she leaves the water jar. Like a sign of the baggage of her past, of her trauma, left there sitting next to Jesus. As she goes to proclaim her experience to the people of the city, the very people that she likely spent most of her life trying to avoid. The healing process has begun for her through the power of an honest conversation. The Department of Veterans Affairs reports that one in five veterans suffers from mental distress as a result of their service. So on this Veterans Day, I want to recognize this statistic. Because we're quick to recognize the service of our veterans, but it is still difficult for us to recognize the unspoken and silent sacrifice that many of them have made. Much like Lieutenant Dan, those who have seen war, who have been injured, who have seen their friends injured, or who have watched their friends die, come back carrying significant trauma and significant grief. And as a country, we have been slow to recognize the toll that this truly takes. And we have been slow to recognize and offer the solution. And the cost has been lives. Casualties of war long after the war. And perhaps it's the distance between those of us at home and the reality of war. Perhaps it's the fact that we want to keep our mental picture of the American soldier as persons who are strong, invulnerable, and impenetrable. But either way, we have inadvertently done these persons a disservice. And we can do better. And so veterans, we celebrate what you have given. All of what you have given. And if no one has ever offered you a place to talk, a place to grieve, a place to deal with your trauma safely, I am so sorry. But please know that you are not alone. Because the beautiful truth that Forrest Gump offers us is the reality that everyone has a story of grief. Forrest had his story. Lieutenant Dan had his. And Forrest's childhood love, Jenny, had hers. 
She was the victim of child abuse, an unresolved trauma that manifests all throughout her life in a number of ways that violate our common sensibilities. The fact is that living in this world means that at some point, we all experience trauma of some point. We all have healing that needs to occur. We all need to allow ourselves to step out from underneath this societal pressure to keep quiet about all the yucky stuff or to save our face or to save the honor of those who have caused us pain. What we need is the courage of the woman at the well to just start to talk. We need the willingness of Forrest Gump to just lay it all out there to strangers on a park bench. Well, maybe we could be a little bit more selective. But what the woman at the well and what Forrest Gump reveal to us is this very evident truth that I need you to hold on to. That pain shared is pain lessened. And so my hope this week is that you will find the courage to talk that you'll take the first step to sharing your pain and lessening it by surrounding yourself with someone who can help you walk through the mud of pain, someone who can put words to the hurt in your heart and allow you to see yourself as more than that pain. I hope that in doing so, you'll be given the courage to reach out to God in heaven to carry you along through the rest of your journey to healing. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are with us in the midst of our pain, that in the midst of our brokenness, you hold us. You tell us that you know what it's like. And so God, we, we pray that you'll continue to work on us and work in us. You'll move us closer to being complete, to being whole, so that we can go out into the world and be people who allow healing to occur with others. We thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for the gifts of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray.